the Republicans to wake up. Is what the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Great listeners support the PBC show. My personal thanks to Eugene Kenny, Bonnie Baker, Julie Dupree, and Deborah Newell. If you're able, and I don't want your unemployment money, Dell, <laughs> go to my website, peterbcollins.com, on the right-hand side of the homepage are the links where you can take out a voluntary subscription for as low as $5 a month. Here comes another installment in the Boiling Frogs interview series, our unprecedented part three conversation with historian Paul Thompson. You'll learn some of the deep history of what is now called Al-Qaeda, well before 9-11, and we're going to visit Bosnia, Chechnya, and many other exotic spots. to the Boiling Frogs. With Sibel Edmonds, I'm Peter B. Collins. Today we talk once again with researcher Paul Thompson. He's the author of The Terror Timeline. He holds a degree in psychology from Stanford University. And today we are going to delve into the relationship between the United States and what became Al-Qaeda in the period prior to 9-11. Paul Thompson, thanks for joining us again today. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, once again, I want to reference the website historycommons.org, where much of the information that we'll discuss today is available in uh, significant detail. And Paul, uh, to set the stage, perhaps you could take us back to the post-World War II period and talk a little bit about uh, America's support for fundamentalist Islamic uh, interests uh, in that period as uh, we were reorganizing the world 
uh, after that great war. Yeah, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today is is very little known, I think, even by people who are interested in, in the 9-11 topic and, and some of these topics. Uh, Robert Dreyfus has written a really good book that shows that the U.S. support for fundamentalist Islam, uh, you know, and groups like al-Qaeda goes way back, uh, all the way back to the 1950s at least. And there's been, over the decades, there's been a really consistent policy of, of supporting these types of groups, because if you think about it, what the United States was, was really worried about in the Middle East and, and other regions was uh, socialists or communists taking over. That was sort of, uh, you know, concern number one. And then concern number two was nationalist groups taking over who might be very independent of, of the United States uh, foreign policy and interests there. And they thought that these... Uh, these fundamentalist Islamic groups were politically conservatives. They were not really going to rock the boat uh, in terms of, uh, you know, their country's relationship with the United States, even though they might make life pretty miserable for, for women's rights and other things inside the country. They felt like things wouldn't really change with foreign policy, so they were considered kind of a, a safe bet, especially when compared against uh, you know, communism, socialism, nationalism, and these other other things. So, uh, like in the 1970s, for instance, uh, Zebru Brzezinski under Carter, uh, he very explicitly had a policy. He wanted to create what he considered a sort of a shield all across the northern part of the Middle East, uh, which would contain the Soviet Union and their attempts at expansion. And his big idea for that shield was to put forth uh, Islam as a countervailing force there that could stop the, the spread of communism. So they were really working to, in a way, to actually strengthen and develop these, these groups like al-Qaeda and the precursors to al-Qaeda, uh, for decades. Now, I'm quite aware of uh, the relationship between the U.S. and the House of Saud, and that was based on geopolitics and oil. Uh, explain a little bit more about the other Islamic nations that the U.S. was involved with, uh, again, in this period of the, say, 1950s, 1960s. Well, I mean, the Saudi Arabia example is a really important one because they're a classic example of they're, they're very conservative, they're very uh, Islamist, which means they believe in this uh, Wahhabist version of Islam that's very expansionist. And the, the Saudis have spent over the years, since they've started really rolling in money in the early 1970s, they've spent billions of dollars promoting their version of this Wahhabist Islam all over the world, building mosques and uh, spending money on, on charity groups and so forth that will all promote this one version of Islam that they have. So that alone has been you know, a huge influence not only in Saudi Arabia, but, but practically every country of the world in which there is you know, the significant Islamic supporters. And the United States was totally okay with that because uh, they thought, here's a country that is not under any kind of threat of communism or joining some other kind of political bloc. 
They just, every year, they very reliably give us oil for cheap prices. So it's a, it's a winning situation all around. And, um, and that policy for Saudi Arabia goes on with a lot of other countries that were very similar, a lot of Middle Eastern um, oil sheikdoms, like, say, the United Arab Emirates is another example. Uh, Pakistan has had some pretty... Uh, radical Islamic, you know, branches of their government throughout the years, where the United States has has been okay with that, and and usually supporting if it's a choice of them or somebody else in power, we like them because they're very predictable, and they continue to give us oil money. Then uh, against that backdrop, uh, explain our relationship with Iran, and uh, certainly Sabel knows much more about this than I do. But on the face of it, uh, we worked to uh, and were quite complicit in overthrowing Mossadegh in 1953. We installed the Shah, and uh, he prevailed until the Islamic Revolution uh, about 1979. And so uh, in that case, we worked hand-in-hand with the Shah, who was brutally repressive of any dissent uh, in Iran, including... Uh, the efforts by uh, is Islamic individuals and groups uh, to assert themselves. Right, yeah. In 53, uh, Iran started uh, to break away from the U.S. sphere of influence, and they had a, a rather independent-minded leader. And he didn't last a year before the CIA managed to oust him in a coup. And that's, you know, not some crazy conspiracy theory. That's pretty much accepted history at this point. Um, and, you know, you see that policy happening in a lot of different places over and over again, where we thought somebody like the Shah, again, is very, very dependable. Sure, they're kind of a dictator, and they may make life miserable for the people living in that country, but uh, they're good parties for, for U.S. Uh, foreign interests and other interests, and that was considered the main thing. And uh, so there was no real concern of... Boy, if we keep doing this time after time in all these different countries, are we going to end up kind of kind of creating a monster here? Uh, and that's that's pretty much what happened. Then, moving into the 1980s, it is well documented that uh, Brzezinski, who was Jimmy Carter's uh, uh, national security advisor, was the architect of the U.S. covert activities uh, in Afghanistan which is where we worked with uh, Islamic uh, mercenaries, uh, including Osama bin Laden. So give us a little context to the development of uh, the U.S. insertion and covert uh, insertion of, of mercenaries and covert support uh, for those who opposed the Soviet invasion and occupation of Afghanistan. Yeah, this is a very interesting thing because... Uh for one thing, what, I think what happens in Afghanistan later becomes a template for what goes on in other countries. Um, and also, there's a, a sort of a common perception that the Soviets wanted to expand down to the Persian Gulf, so one day they just kind of up and attacked Afghanistan. And that's, you know, that's what most people thought for a very long time. And over the years, it's sort of slowly dribbled out that, in fact, in the six months prior to the Afghan invasion, uh, the United States was very involved in there, and they were supporting uh, 
dissident forces with a lot of money with with you know covert CIA activity and so the Soviets actually were reacting to that they thought that if they didn't do something soon that you know that they would become a puppet of the United States in Afghanistan and Brzezinski years later he actually boasted about this and how clever he was and sort of drawing them into this trap um, so you know, so that's something that most people don't know that I think they really should know because it's very indicative of of the whole U.S. foreign policy for decades was they were thinking we're being so clever using these uh, fundamentalist Muslim forces. And then once the, the war really got rolling there, there was an alliance that very quickly developed between the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan. Basically, the United States said, Okay, we want to support these Mujahideen, these rebels who are fighting the the Russians, but it's a lot of money. So Saudi Arabia agreed basically dollar for dollar. If the U.S. gives them the Mujahideen a billion dollars, then Saudi Arabia will match that with another billion dollars. So there was a, a, a equal partnership right there going on. And then... Pakistan is located right next to Afghanistan, and basically they gave all the money to Pakistan, to the ISI, the intelligence agency, and then Pakistan was supposed to be the handlers for the uh, the Mujahideen and give them the money and figure out who and where and what and all that, which they did, but they ended up taking a huge cut themselves. So you have this uh, relationship of the Pakistani government, Saudi government, and the U.S. government all working hand-in-hand, hand, and that would later go on to be replicated in other other uh, countries. And, Paul, let's clarify, because they always use the word Mujahideen. So up until this point, the Mujahideen, the group, includes al-Qaeda-related people and the Taliban, and who else? Well, I should point out that you know, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan was sort of a huge propaganda coup for bin Laden and people like that. Uh, you know, they've talked over the years how they managed to defeat the, the Soviet Union, whereas, in fact, 95-plus percent, probably close to 99 percent of the Mujahideen were actually the Afghans living in Afghanistan, you know, who were born and raised there. And there was this sort of this tiny trickle of a very small number of people from countries around the world uh, who sort of got united under bin Laden in the 19, uh, 1980s there. And and they became, they become very important for uh uniting those disparate forces around the world. You might have people in Algeria and, you know, Libya and Jordan and Syria, all these different countries who might have never gotten together, um, and they all made common cause. But compared to the total number of people fighting in Afghanistan, they were they were just a small trickle, and most of the Mujahideen, close to 99%, were the Afghans themselves. So it wasn't really this huge, you know, it wasn't like bin Laden single-handedly um, won the war there. What what his big role was, and the big role of all of this, was, was the money aspect, 
where these Mujahideen, these Afghan people, they didn't really have much money and they didn't have much in the way of weapons. And so this pipeline of the Pakistanis and the Saudis and the U.S. all working, what they really did was they took these Afghans who didn't really have anything and they gave them the Stinger missiles, they gave them, you know, all kinds of machine guns, weapons, money, um, and then that network that was created, then this is international network, was now ready to go at the end of the war to be used in other places. Exactly. So then we had the war over, the Soviet-Afghan war, and we had the Cold War ended. And now let's take us to our activities, U.S. objectives, because of the resources there in Central Asia and Caucasus, and the role there that will be played by these Mujahideen. And then we'll, again, break them down into who are these new Mujahideen partners that, that we had in 1990s in that region. Right. Well, the Russians withdrew in 1989 from Afghanistan, and... Uh, there was, for about three years more, there was some fighting there because their puppet governments, uh, the communist government there, lingered on for about three years. But the fighting was starting to wind down, and so people like bin Laden were looking around and saying kind of, well, that, that worked out pretty well. What do we do now? And just right at that time that the war was winding down, another war was starting up in uh, in former Yugoslavia in Bosnia. And um, so that whole network and the not only the bin Laden part, but the support of the United States, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia, they pretty much just picked up their operation and moved the whole thing over to Bosnia. In fact, I found one article in a newspaper that uh, didn't really name names, but it kind of... Uh, hinted at saying that even the U.S. people who were responsible for interacting with these various forces were basically all the exact same people from Afghanistan, uh, all the U.S. State Department officials and other officials. They just pretty much all changed their, their desks, you know, over to the, the Bosnia front. Um, and it's it's something you know most people you sort of i think commonly know about what was going on in Afghanistan and how the u s supported uh people like bin Laden back then, but very few people know about what was going on in the balkans and and that I think in a lot of ways is even more important to today um you start to find all kinds of connections between what was happening then and and what happens later. Um, and it's it's a really wild story. If I can kind of go into it in a little more depth, what happened was that you have the Serbians, you have the Croatians, and you have the Bosnian Muslims, and uh, Yugoslavia was breaking up into pieces. And very early on, the UN, with the U.S. and other countries supporting this, they put a weapons embargo on that whole area said no weapons, no outside funding allowed to come into any of these uh, sides in the war. But what happened was that the Serbians were really the inheritors of the Yugoslav army. They had 
a pretty sizable army in all tanks and fighter planes and all kinds of things. And the Bosnian Muslims and the Croatians basically had nothing. So the United States at that point thought, well, we don't want the Serbians to win. So they created secret mechanisms with which to give the Croatians and especially the Bosnian Muslims a huge amount of money and weapons in order to fight the Serbians. And the United States at that point pretty much really backed. They said, we want the Bosnian Muslims to win and the Croatians to win, and we want the Serbians to lose, because the Serbians are still representing the forces of communism at that point. Right. Um, so there's this very little known, but to me extremely important charity front called the Third World Relief Agency, which was a bin Laden-related group. And with U.S. nudge-nudge, wink-wink, they brought in at least $2 billion dollars and uh, to help pay for the weapons and other things for the Bosnian Muslims. And uh, there was a lot of really just so overt support where the United States was working hand-in-hand with Osama bin Laden at this point. Um, They uh, actually had, for several years, they had C-130 flights that were coming in and they were bringing in weapons, and some reports say even large numbers of mujahideen. And it's not necessarily that those C-130 flights were all U.S. aircraft. We're not really sure who owned the aircraft. But the thing was, was the U.S. was very militarily involved in that region. They had these AWACS fighters that you know were seeing anything coming in and out of the region. And top British officials claimed at the time, you know, there were big reports in the BBC and so forth, said that night after night the these flights would be coming in and all these other countries that were part of the UN coalition, like Britain, basically felt that the United States, night after night, would turn a blind eye and and pretend they didn't notice all these flights coming in. And... Uh, prevent anybody else, the British and the others, from doing anything to stop these flights. So they were obviously done, I mean, this went on and on and on for, for several years, uh, with, with full U.S. knowledge that, uh, you know, that this was sort of this weapons pipeline that was breaking the U.N. embargo. It was like this massive Iran-Contra affair type uh, operation that was going on for years, and uh, yet it never really broke in the United States. It never really became a big scandal the way the Iran-Contra affair did. Right, Paul, and I know that Turkey played a major role with those flights and also with the uh, transferring both people, and these are the Mujahideen groups, but also weapons. Right. Turkey and and in fact Turkey issued thousands of passports to these mujahideens that were from Algeria and Egypt and Jordan who had basically come to places like Azerbaijan from their Turkey and in fact some of the Turkey's uh, NATO planes were used to, to transport these people now who at this point are we talking about 1995 1996 right now well this is 
This really begins in 1992 and continues. The fighting remains hot in Bosnia all the way through about what you're saying, 95, 96. So who were the leaders for these uh, for these Mujahideen groups? Were like Bin Laden, Zawahiri? Who were the key people for for this particular for these particular operations? Well, it's it's pretty wild, you know, because we now know the two big leaders are uh, Osama bin Laden and Ayman al Zawahiri, and apparently uh, they had a very close personal involvement in all this. There was. Uh, two Western reporters uh, who actually met Osama bin Laden in Bosnia, um, where he was meeting, uh, where he was uh, having a meeting with the with the Bosnian Muslim president there, and he was reportedly, you know, they found out he was coming in uh, on a weekly basis, and he actually got a passport, a Bosnian passport, and and just couldn't be more directly involved. One of these reporters actually testified about this just a couple of years ago when they had uh, uh, the trial against um, Slobodan Milosevic in the, in the Hague. And, uh, very, you know, it's very little known. And, in fact, when, when she tried to testify about this, the judge kind of cut her off and changed the direction of, of the hearings because it, nowadays it looks so embarrassing. At the same time, that Osama bin Laden was was directly so closely personally involved in this, the United States was, and they were you know having meetings with that same president, you know, just as much as bin Laden was. So he's very involved. Now then, Ayman al Zawahiri, he had a couple brothers who later got killed uh, at the end of the 90s, but he and his two brothers were pretty much the ones who were put in charge for all of the 1990s of. Uh, of operations in the Balkans, and he was based, uh, Zawahiri was based in Bulgaria, apparently, he had kind of a little safe haven there, and he was directing operations there for years, all the way through the end of the Kosovo War in the, in the late 1990s. So uh, those guys are very directly involved. And then here's something which I think is, is so fascinating, and not a lot of people know about this, is that there was a, a small mosque in New York City uh, known as Al-Kifa, and it was kind of associated with the blind sheikh, the sheikh uh, Omar Abdelrahman, and who was ended up getting life sentence for the World Trade Center bombing in 1993. But that Al-Kifa uh, front was, and it was pretty much a front, an al-Qaeda front, um, started in the 1980s as a way to get people who were really agitated and fundamentalist Muslim types in the United States to go and fight over in uh, Afghanistan. And there was a sort of a channel of people, not a lot, but some hundred, few hundred people uh, going from the United States over to fight in Afghanistan. And then when that war ended, this channel then directed its energy towards Bosnia. And it seems like at the time, the United States really wanted um, some people who were from the United States to go over and kind of, uh, they were thinking that they're working for, uh, you know, these al-Qaeda-type groups, but that they were also sort of being the United States' eyes and ears 
There were even a group of about a dozen, it's believed, uh, diehard Muslim ex-special um, forces people who went over there as part of this whole Al-Kifa front, who then became trainers in uh, Bosnia for the Mujahideen who were arriving and who were training them in U.S. military weapons techniques. Uh, so there was, you know, things like that. By instead of going over there and actually taking current special forces who were actually in the in the U.S. military, they were getting these people who were recently retired. And so there's a degree of deniability there, but then you're still getting the same effect and. Uh, making sure that these forces will be effective and well-funded and well-trained. And, and that's what we did. We did that for years. You know, so if you look back and, and after 9-11, this becomes so embarrassing because now this big enemy of ours is a group that we worked hand-in-glove with in Bosnia and other countries in the 1990s. Right. And Paul, and now let's move to Chechnya and Central Asia Caucasus, specifically Azerbaijan, which takes us from 1996 to all the way end of 1990s, 1999. Right. Well, basically they figured, just kind of imagining, they figured we got a good thing going here. It's worked in Afghanistan. It's worked in Bosnia. Let's try it out in other places. And so this same network where you have uh, the Mujahideen are, are kind of, they're the actual feet on the ground. They're doing the legwork, and they've got the uh, support of bin Laden and, and other leaders like that. Uh, Zawahiri is another one. Um, but they have the secret backing of Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, and then ultimately behind that you have the United States. Uh, they they looked at other places where this could work as a model to get U.S. foreign policy interests achieved, and they just replicated the same process. A good example would be Chechnya, where that for starting in the mid-1990s, that became a real thorn in the side of Russia uh, because you had a, a sort of a Vietnam-type situation where every year the Russian soldiers were going in there and a lot of them were being killed fighting these fundamentalist Muslim forces in Chechnya. And so the United States thought, hey, this is a really good situation for us because if this can keep this traditional enemy, Russia, uh, weak, they have to expend all their energy year after year fighting in Chechnya, then they're not going to be doing other things that, you know, that could harm our interests. So uh, the United States was very happy to see that continue. And then Azerbaijan is another situation where you have, in the early 1990s, you have the, the breakdown of the Soviet Union, you have all these successor states coming up. And it seems like basically around 1993, the United States did not really like the successor state that was coming into Azerbaijan. And uh, Peter Dale Scott has documented this very ably. And he's a very intelligent uh, professor from Berkeley uh, who wrote work, a good excellent book. Excellent work he's done, you're right. Yeah, he wrote a really good book called The Road to 9-11 uh, that documents some of this stuff. But you have even some of the 
figures uh, like Richard Secord from uh, the Iran-Contra affair and other dubious U.S. covert a- operations, they show up in Azerbaijan around this time. Uh, then, then all of a sudden, a couple thousand Mujahideen show up in Azerbaijan. There was a little-known war that was going on there um, between Azerbaijan and Armenia over this one disputed little area. And so the Mujahideen came in there in several thousand and fought in that uh, little disputed enclave, and then in the process, they destabilized the government of Azerbaijan, and it was replaced with there was a coup, and the new government was pro-U.S. and very willing to sell all the oil because that's a very oil-rich area. Um, not a lot of people know about this, but Azerbaijan was sort of the jewel in the crown of of the the Soviet Union's oil supply. Um, and even in World War II, that was that was Hitler's sort of main target in wanting to attack the Soviet Union was to get to Azerbaijan and get to all the oil there. So very oil-rich. And they suddenly become uh, a U.S. ally. And, and so we see this process happening uh, time and time again with with this alliance, you know, not really direct, and, you know, it's not like bin Laden is flying to Washington, D.C., at least as far as we know. You know, Oh, but, so well, I hear he was. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, well, we can go into that, too. <laughs> yes, uh, but, but, you know, with, with sort of layers of, of, of intermediaries, you effectively have an alliance between the United States and al-Qaeda forces. Now, and this continues all the way till end of 90s. Yeah, oh, now, and, and just to mention about the the uh, Al Zawahiri thing. Okay, before uh, we, we go there, though, I want to understand how does this whole thing? I mean, we are having these cooperations and partnership and alliances with the Mujahideen, Al Qaeda, Bin Laden group in Balkans, in Central Asia, Chechnya, the Caucasus region, and which continues all the way towards the uh, end of 1990s, which basically is the issues that they try to gag, and they gag with the state secrets privilege in my case. But that's going on on one side. But then you're looking at towards the end of 90s, like starting in 1997, 1998, then you're dealing with this Yemen hub, and then after that, USS coal, but then all the stuff that is going on with NSA and the al-Qaeda and everything. So what I'm trying to say is how, how these two, how these two, two uh Scenarios simultaneously exist, coexist, and come together. When, on one hand, during the same years, we are working and we are we are having carrying out operations for our you know strategic geostrategic um, objectives, uh, and they are basically our, our our allies, indirect allies in in Central Asia Balkans. And yet, we are having you know these Yemen hub going, and again, we are after Bin Laden. In fact, we that. During this time, Clinton went and, and bombed this Sudan uh, pharmaceutical company. We are trying to get bin Laden while we are working with bin Laden on the other side. Now help me, Paul, how, how these two things coexist. Well, you bring up a really good point. I mean, as we talked about uh, previously, you have this Yemen hub, which from at least, well, I think it started in 1996, and the United States is mapping out al-Qaeda operatives all over the world. They seem to be getting an incredible amount of information on who's involved and what they're doing all over the world. 
And you would think that that would lead to rolling up uh, al-Qaeda to the point that they would not be effective in having any successful bombings anywhere, and yet they continue to have successful bombings. And you, you, we can definitely speculate, and I think it makes a lot of sense, that, that there was sort of, you don't want to destroy these organizations because they are working so well for U.S. foreign policy interests. Like a, a good example that brings it right up into 9-11 is you have Zacharias Musawi, supposed 20th hijacker. We don't quite know what his role was, but he was doing something in the United States before 9-11. And uh, he appears to have been very involved in Chechnya. And he was working there with this warlord named Ibn Khattab, who was a very close ally of bin Laden, who is a Chechen warlord. And when the people, the FBI, uh, found out about him in Minnesota, and they arrested him, they very quickly discovered his ties to this Chechen warlord, and yet there was this disinterest on the part of people in FBI headquarters to do anything about him, even though he seems clearly tied to Chechnya. And if you look at the bigger picture, you could think that perhaps the people in the FBI headquarters, as opposed to the people in the lower levels of the FBI, they may have they they may have been given marching orders of look at the larger geostrategic point of view here that we actually if there's some guy like Zaw, uh, like uh, Musawi who's going over and fighting in Chechnya more power to him we don't want to stop those people we want those people to go over there and do that you're right the, that those pressures always came through State Department and the CIA even the higher level guys in FBI they hated it and it it, it was the marching order coming from the State Department you're absolutely right and so if you look at 9-11 and who we think the key people are, you have, uh, you have, for instance, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He fought in Bosnia back in the early 1990s. He may have been involved in Chechnya and some of these other regions. Um, we know that he had a very uh, high-level protection by the Pakistani government, um, he was involved in 1993 in an apparent um, assassination attempt of Benazir Bhutto, the prime minister there. And uh, so he was working with some of the enemies of, of Bhutto. And there were actually, in 1993, the U.S., uh, they were doing an investigation of his nephew, Ramzi Yosef, and they found pictures of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and his brother, with very top-level people in Pakistan, the very highest-level politicians. So he's somebody who seems to be involved in this whole network of, of uh, the Saudi-Pakistani and ultimately kind of U.S. network. And then you have, um, you have a couple of the 9-11 hijackers. You have uh, Khalid Al-Madar, Nawaf al-Hazmi. We know they fought in, in Bosnia. They later went on and they fought in Chechnya. There's a, a reports that 11 of the other 9-11 hijackers wanted to go in a fight in Chechnya. Now, we don't know. Um, most of those, we're not sure if they ever actually made it or not. It's not clear. But you can see that there was a, a continual effort of these al-Qaeda operatives wanting to go and take part in Chechnya. 
And that was continuing all the way right up until 9-11. Paul, I want to take a moment here and ask you to describe the history of the relationship between the House of Bush and the House of bin Laden. And while we're told that uh, Osama, who's one of 50-plus children uh, of this uh, father with many wives, uh, and that he was a black sheep, uh, or at least at some point was written out of the bin Laden family, uh, we know going back that George H.W. Bush headed the CIA before he became vice president. And while Brzezinski and Carter were the architects of the U.S. Uh, covert involvement in Afghanistan, it was uh, mostly occurring in the 1980s after Reagan became president. So if you could trace those origins and then move forward uh, into uh, the current century, uh, I'm curious what, what you would comment on in that Bush-Bin Laden relationship? Well, you know, we talked a while back, uh, you know, in the last interview session um, about the Bin Laden um, connection, some of these connections, um, for instance, that there were these really rich billionaire Saudis and other oil sheikhs who are benefiting very much from the United States relationship and the flow of the oil going to the West. And at the same time, they're dabbling in supporting groups like Al-Qaeda. There was this uh, list that was eventually found in Bosnia, of all places, which I think is pretty significant, um, by U.S. investigators called the Golden Chain that listed about a dozen really powerful uh, billionaire-type people who were secretly supporting bin Laden. And, uh, you know, people who were in the bin Laden family were included in this. All, all the way, uh, there was a wedding, for instance, took place in Afghanistan about six months before 9-11 with uh, bin Laden marrying off one of his sons. And a number of bin Laden's family members came over there and, and participated in the wedding. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that the ties with that family, at least a lot of the family members, was continuing. Uh, and so these other people that you have are these billionaires that I'm talking about are supposed allies of the United States. Like there was a, a incident that's been much talked about in 1999 when the United States um, – found bin Laden in Afghanistan. They found he was falcon hunting. He was in this remote falcon hunting camp. They thought, this is a great place. We could we could drop a few bombs on him here, and, uh, you know, you won't kill any children or innocents because they're just these people way off in this falcon hunting camp. But what happened was it turns out, as they were looking at the data, that he was falcon hunting with half of the royal family from the United Arab Emirates, including some very high-ranking princes. And at the same time, um, the United States was involved in a big military deal to sell uh, F-16 fighters to some of these same princes who were falcon hunting with Osama bin Laden. So we passed on the opportunity to drop the bombs there because we didn't want to kill these royal family members. So you have this you know, really bizarre situation where with the Saudi royals and with the bin Laden family and with other key, uh, you know, sheiks in the, in the region, and, of, and then also with the Pakistani ISI, where these people are considered allies of the United States, 
And yet, at the same time, they're working very closely with bin Laden, who's supposed to be our enemy at the time. And Paul Thompson, uh, another angle that is very interesting in the timeline uh, relates to the Bank of uh, Credit and Commerce International, BCCI. It was based in Pakistan. It was led by a man named Gaith Farone, who was very close to Jimmy Carter and to Carter's discredited uh, former budget director, Bert Lance. Farone bailed out Lance's uh, little bank in Calhoun, Georgia. Jimmy Carter was known to have accepted free rides on uh, Farone's uh, plane uh, to different places where he was traveling as a peacemaker uh, in in the eighties, uh, late 80s and uh, 1990s. And uh, in the timeline is a citation in October of 2001 uh, that uh, bin Laden, Osama bin Laden, was seen at the London estate of Khalid bin Mahfouz, who was one of the major investors in BCCI. What can you add to uh, explain some of these uh, interesting angles? Well, BCCI is really wild stuff. It's one of those things where it just seems the truth is stranger than fiction. Um, you know, the cart... Carter administration started to get involved in that. Um, what, what, what really happens, you have to go back to around 1975, where in the wake of Watergate, there was, um, there was all these disclosures about the CIA and their covert operations around the world, and all of a sudden the CIA was facing a lot of scrutiny, uh, a lot of public exposure, and right at that time, this group was formed, this very mysterious group called the Safari Club, who hardly anybody's ever heard about. But they were a, a group of really high-level elites, uh, mostly Western elites, um, who wanted to continue some of these very, uh, blat- frank- frankly, pretty blatantly illegal activities around the world. You know, you don't like a certain government, so you overthrow it. Um, and uh, so they created this sort of alliance, um, French uh, pop uh, foreign French ministers are involved in this, the Saudis are very much involved in this, uh, top U.S. officials, uh, the Bush family is included in this. Um, and so it seems what happened was they kind of created a network to do things totally off the book, uh, and right at this time, the BCCI kind of just appears out of nowhere. It had only been formed a couple of years earlier, and suddenly it becomes one of the most popular, uh, you know, popular banks in the entire world. It just grows exponentially, and uh, and then things get really interesting in the 1980s because uh, Bill Casey, uh, the head of the CIA under Reagan. He becomes very deeply involved with the BCCI. It's been reported in uh, reputable Western sources. Uh, I think even I think Time or Newsweek did a story on this, saying that he met regularly Bill Casey uh, with the head of the BCCI, who would fly into Washington and meet him all the time. And at the same time that these meetings were going on, the BCCI was just operating like some kind of mafia organization where they were killing people right and left, uh, involved in drug smuggling, the tune of billions of dollars, involved in illegal weapons shipments all over the place. And 
what finally happened was that in 1991, BCCI was just growing like an octopus, and they were a bit like a, um, a pyramid scheme, um, and they couldn't sustain the growth, and eventually they collapsed, and they were shut down in 91. And uh, so this very functional network that was doing all kinds of who knows what uh, covert operations and funding of covert operations. Uh, we know the CIA, uh, British intelligence, uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, Abu Nadal, all kinds of dubious characters, uh, Colombian drug lords, all had bank accounts at BCCI. And so it was just this con conduit for wrongdoing just all over the world. All of a sudden, that's shut down. And so now where are all these various nefarious uh, groups and people going to put their money? There are reports that bin Laden and his organization picked up a lot of that slack and became kind of the successor organization for BCCI. Now, there's not a lot known about that, but, but there certainly are some reports that, that suggest that. That's very interesting. It's just so convoluted. I'm Paul. Now, let's go back to our topic with Zawahiri. And he's like, okay, when you guys don't come to me, I just come over there. He's been here several times. I know most of them are documented. And he's done some successful fundraising here, and we have some connections to Ali Muhammad. Please tell us all about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you got to remember that going back in the 1980s, the United States couldn't be more supportive of the Mujahideen and groups like that. They're putting billions of dollars to support the uh, the defeat of the Soviets in Afghanistan, and so. People would come over, these, uh, these leaders of these very fundamentalist Islamic groups would come over to the United States and openly fundraise in the United States. Uh, Abdullah Azam, who is sort of bin Laden's mentor, um, and just as anti-Western, anti-U.S. as he was, uh, he was actually, there are reports he was actually considered a, a CIA asset back in the 1980s, and he would repeatedly come to the United States on both uh, fundraising tours and to raise uh, uh, support for people who want to go and fight overseas. And um, and like I said, this is all kind of tied into the Al-Kifa front in New York, which ends up getting very directly involved in, uh, in the World Trade Center bombing in 1993 and a whole bunch of other uh, bombings and attacks in the, in the United States. And then sort of in that picture, some of the other people who show up in the United States, one of them is al-Zawahiri. I think he there's reports he first shows up in uh, 1989. But then what's really interesting is you have the World Trade Center happening, bombing happening in 1993, and then uh, Zawahiri continues to show up in 1994 and 1995, He's working under an alias, uh, but he comes in the United States, and he's fundraising all over. And uh, when he goes to California, he meets and apparently stays with uh, Ali Mohammed, who at that point is a U.S. asset, and uh, apparently double or triple agent, and is uh, somebody who's being monitored at the time. So 
we can see that even after you would think 1993, okay, we almost, I mean, this is something that a lot of people know is that it was that World Trade Center bombing came within a, a hair of taking down one or both of those towers and would have killed way more people than were killed in, uh, in 9-11 because if the tower comes down, people, people don't have an hour to flee the building like they did in 9-11. Um, so it would have been tens of thousands of people would have been killed. You would think that at that point... U.S. intelligence would say, oh, my God, this is terrible. We can't allow this kind of thing to go on. And they would immediately try to arrest anybody even remotely involved with that. But instead, we have these networks just openly continuing with the very same people, often people who are heavily implicated in the World Trade Center bombing, are able to go on and do their business for for years afterwards in the United States in a very uh, open kind of way. Absolutely. I have one last question. Actually, it's almost like a statement. I don't even know if it's a question. But with all these facts, can you imagine the United States ever wanting to put any of these guys in trial live? You know, let's say without, you know, doping them after all the waterboarding and torture. You know, it's okay, so Bin Laden one way or another was eliminated or killed or died. But, I mean, if they put Zawahiri, if they capture him alive, okay, and, and, and if they were to put him on trial, can you imagine the comedy there? I mean, he will be talking about his many dinners and luncheons with all our big-name government people and everything he knows and everything he has done, all the operations that we have carried out together all over the world, like in Central Asia and Balkans. Right, or, I mean, or even look at Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Um, you know, he's being held there in Guantanamo. There was some motion that uh, there was an idea that he was going to be tried with some other people in the they? United States. How and in they? the end, they said, no, we're going to have only this military <laughs> tribunal. Under I, I'm Ver laughing, but it's, it's, it's a different kind of a laugh. I don't know how to describe. It's hysterical, but they put them out there. I mean, okay, you can see, like, even by the pictures, you look at the guys, he's been waterboarded and doped and tortured. I mean, he, he has been electro electroshocked God knows how many times. But even even with that, they don't dare to put this guy there on the stand. Same thing with Ali Muhammad. Um, I have a very, very, very high-level, uh, reliable source that knows that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, not, uh, Ali Muhammad, he is under witness protection program. He's not in jail. Right. And well, the reason they know is because part of his um, uh, files dossier ties into some of the upcoming uh, military tribunals for, for Guantanamo inmates. So anyway, I won't get into that. I don't want the source to get in trouble. But same thing with Zawahiri. So Bin Laden is down. So nobody, you could never, ever, ever even imagine in your wildest dreams that, that the United States government would want to put any of these guys on a stand, on a trial, because how could they, right? Yeah, I mean, there are there other people. There's another guy people don't know about much called Ihab Ali, for instance. He was arrested in 1999. He was tied in with Ali Mohammed. Uh, it looked like he was going to go on trial, and now here it is, what, 12 years later, and he just disappeared down a hole. No one, you know, never knew what happened to him. There was the trial just never took place, and he just disappeared. There are a lot of people like that who seem to to 
kind of know too much, and they can never go on trial. And Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would be one of those people. I mean, imagine if he were to ever be in a real open trial. He could talk about what he knows about Bosnia. He could talk about all his high-level connections with the Pakistani government. But we could see there's actually an interesting kind of parallel in this with uh, Slobodan Milosevic. When he was put on trial uh, in The Hague, he uh, kind of tried to turn things around and say, look, you know, uh, I'm not so guilty because look what the United States was doing at the time in Bosnia and how the U.S. was working with Osama bin Laden and so forth. And that really never got out there in the mainstream media coverage of the trial. But he had a lot of damning stuff that he was trying to put forward in that trial. So I think the U.S. really tries hard to ever <laughs> have trials like that ever take place. Well, well, here's my wildest dream before I let you go, and I'll have uh, Peter take over from this point. But my wildest dream, we put these guys on trial, and I want you and Peter Lance as the prosecutors asking the questions. <laughs> when it comes to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and also uh, Ayman uh, Zawahiri, you you would be my top two choices for, for, for prosecutors. <laughs> Peter, you? Well, uh, thank you, Sabel, and I know you need to uh, wrap up yourself, so uh, go ahead. Uh, and, and, Paul, this really begs another question, and that is... Given this long and tortuous history of the U.S. connections to uh, al-Qaeda and its precedents, uh, and the also tortuous relationship with Osama bin Laden, the question that arises for me is, what kept him quiet all those years? And if we accept that he is dead, uh, would he not have attempted to uh, release information embarrassing to the United States about that long-running relationship uh, as kind of a payback uh, for his his uh, execution. Well, no, he wouldn't. And the reason why is because it's a double-edged sword. Uh, you know, Al-Qaeda and, and, and groups like that have often faced allegations that they're just nothing better than a, a CIA front, or a Mossad front, or whatever the case may be, they're constantly having to fight that perception. And so, if you if he were to talk about this kind of stuff, it would be uh, damning to the United States, but it would be just as or more damning to himself. Hmm. Um, interestingly enough, there were some early interviews back in the mid 1990s where he talked about the support that. The, the Mujahideen got in Afghanistan from the United States. Um, and then very shortly thereafter, he changed his tune completely and said there was never any help whatsoever from the United States hmm. in, in Afghanistan, which is clearly untrue. Um, you know, that not only he didn't get anybody any money or support, but none of the people fighting there ever did, you know, which is clearly untrue. So he obviously saw how damning that kind of, uh, you know, those kind of disclosures are for his own credibility. Uh, so it ends up becoming kind of a conspiracy of silence where, where, where both sides benefit by, by keeping this, this whole covert relationship a secret. Very interesting, and I do understand that point, and that his devotion to his own image as a uh, jihadist leader uh, would prevail 
over his uh, desire to settle a score with the United States. And uh, so I, I guess that's the legacy that he chose. Well, Paul Thompson, this is fascinating. I want to thank you for your expert commentary. And again, direct people to the website historycommons.org, where you can find out uh, a great deal more about... You know, you know though, before we finish, sure. um, I also I kind of had on the agenda uh, uh, talking about uh, the Pakistani ISI. Would it be all right if I say a few things on that? Oh, yeah, please do. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, if we look at these networks where the United States and the Saudis and the Pakistanis, you know, there was this network of the Saudis and the Pakistanis working together. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence, actually, that that network then turned around and and was directly involved in funding and uh, creating the whole 9-11 attack. There's, uh, I think, credible evidence that the person who is the head of the ISI at the time of 9-11, a guy named Mahmoud Ahmed, uh, there are media reports that he directed uh, about $100,000 to Mohammed Atta in the United States using an intermediary of a guy named Saeed Sheikh. And uh, you not only look at that, but you look throughout the years that, that there have been many uh, attacks that have been directly supported and often planned by the ISI. Just in recent years, there was an attack in uh, Afghanistan. The Indian embassy was blown up in 1998. Uh, Fifty or so people were killed there. According to the New York Times, other high-level sources, uh, the U.S. intelligence uh, had phone intercepts showing that the ISI was behind that attack. Uh, even though it was really blamed on al-Qaeda-linked forces. Then you have 1998, you have the Mumbai attack in India killed about uh, 150 people. Very good intelligence there as well that the ISI was behind it. There's a mm -hmm. person on trial in the United States right now named David Headley um, who was involved in that attack, and he is testifying just in the past few weeks that he was getting all his orders uh, from the ISI. Prior to 9-11, this goes all the way through the years, where the ISI has, has funded attack after attack. They've, uh, they've often been the ones who've actually organized and, and trained the people involved. And I see 9-11 attacks as being part of that pattern. Well, I think that's a very interesting line of thought. I just wanted to make a quick correction. You said 1998. Mumbai was in 2008. Oh, 2008. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but everything else you said was accurate there. And uh, I agree that the real unexplored angle is the double game that Pakistan has been playing with the United States for at least 20 years. So we have this crazy situation where all the way up until the current day now, we, we have these networks that were established uh, going back to the 1980s, if not before, um, with, with the Saudis and the Pakistanis who are supposed to be our close allies. Um, and they, in turn, support these al-Qaeda-like groups. And we continue to give, for instance, Pakistan, I think since 9-11, we've given them $20 billion in aid. And then they turn around and support, they train and, and fund the very people who go off and fight U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. So this whole 
craziness that we've been talking about today that goes all the way back to the 1950s, it, it seems to be continuing all the way up to the current day. Most people don't know about it. I think if people did, they would be outraged. Well, we're doing what we can to help inform more people, Paul, and I do appreciate uh, what you've brought us today, a lot of fascinating information that uh, should be of interest to the corporate mainstream media in this country. But gosh, they've got Casey Anthony and uh, other really important stories to pursue. Thank you, Paul Thompson, and uh, appreciate the work that you do. Okay, thanks for talking.